Well, it's good to see everyone here uh, this morning as we uh, start the Christmas season. Christmas, it is here. It is upon us. Uh, this past Wednesday, we were driving up to the church to, to decorate the church, and we had, we'd seen some Christmas lights out, outside, and Russell saw them, and he said, Christmas? Daddy, it was just Halloween. Like, he gets it. Like, it moves quick, and the, the older you get, the quicker it goes. However, this Advent season for Christmas, we really have a, an opportunity to treasure what Christmas is all about and how that should shape and influence and mold our lives. This Advent season leading up to Christmas, it's a chance for us to slow down, to pause, to really reflect and consider what Christ has done. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Advent, Advent simply means an arrival or the arrival of a notable person or figure. So the invitation of the Christmas season within Advent is for us to reflect and consider what it means for Jesus, who is God, to be with us. If you are um, familiar with Advent, you'll also know that each Sunday leading up to Christmas highlights a different theme of the Christmas story, hope, joy, peace, love. But like we've already sung this morning, that's not a familiar story for a lot of us leading up to Christmas. Instead of hope, love, joy, and peace, it can bring the opposite, busyness, stress, pressure, or sometimes even worse, despair, misery, or conflict. So wherever this Christmas season finds you, wherever you are as we gather here this morning, anywhere between hope and despair, peace and conflict, joy and misery, whatever place or state you're in, Christmas is meant to show us that Jesus will meet you there. Jesus will meet you in the midst of your suffering and despair. He will come alongside you in your joy and hope. Jesus will meet you where you're at. So today, this morning, we're going to look at a few things. Uh, we're going to look at three things primarily this morning. The first one is the confronting reality of the gospel accounts. The confronting reality of the gospel accounts. Second is the truly good news of Christmas. And then third, the invitation of Christmas is to rest. And we're going to do this all through a unique way by looking at the genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if you have spent any time in the scriptures, any time looking at the Gospel accounts, you'll notice that they are very similar. They have a lot of the same stories, but oftentimes they're a little different as well. And this has caused some people to wonder and even worry and then try to unify the gospel accounts. One of the earliest ways that this was done by the early church father, Tatian, I think I'm getting his name right, Tatian in the second century AD, he had a work called Diatessaron, meaning through the four. And what he sought to do was weave the four gospel accounts into a single narrative that was unified for him and made sense in his mind. But as believers, as Christians today, do we have to worry about unifying the four gospel accounts? No. They are Holy Spirit inspired by God. And so we need to understand that the gospel writers, when they write the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Luke or John or Mark, they are doing a unique thing for us to see Jesus. And when we get to the gospel of Matthew, he is very poetically calling us to see through the genealogy of Jesus, the majesty, the glory of God in this child. 
So let's read uh, the genealogy of Jesus this morning. I don't know if it's been a part of your reading lately. There's a lot of strange names that we're not familiar with. So bear with me. We're going to read starting in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. If you have your Bibles with you, you'll need to open up there. I don't have it on the screen this morning. We're going to be starting in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. And then we will make some observations this morning. It says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminabad, Dab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was, had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at that time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shotil, Shotil, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abuhud, Abuhud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Messiah, to the Messiah. All right. Now, I've never wanted an applause after reading passage of Scripture, but this morning I do. That was, uh, that was difficult. Thank you. Thank you. That was weak, but it's okay. I'll take it. No, the genealogy of Jesus. Now, this should strike us as unique. Notice how Matthew does not start off his gospel. He doesn't start off by saying, in a galaxy far, far away, there was a God who had a son of God who sent his son to a planet called Earth to redeem and make it new. Notice, Matthew also doesn't say, once upon a time, there was a God who had a son. And he sent his son to the earth. No, what does Matthew do? He starts off with a historical genealogy that tells us this. We can go back and see the historicity of Jesus and his line. Now, the gospel, according to Matthew, is doing this unique thing. It's telling us that the gospel is not like a fairy tale. 
The gospel is not another moralizing story where we just get a few good ideas about how we should live our life. There is no moral to the story of the nativity. The shepherds, the parents of Jesus, the wise men are not being held up primarily for us as examples. The Christmas story isn't telling you what we should do. The Christmas story is telling us what God has done. And this is unique. And here's why this is important. Here's what Keller says about this. He says, advice is counsel about what you must do. News, however, is a report of what has already been done. Advice urges you to go and make something happen. News urges you to recognize something has already happened and to respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act, but news tells us that someone has acted. The birth of the Son of God into the world is a gospel. It is good news for us, an announcement that you don't have to save yourself, that God has come to save you. Christianity, then, is not primarily about self-improvement. It's not a place where we just get some principles and inspiration for guidance of life. Of course, Christianity and the gospel has massive implications about how we should live our lives in obedience to King Jesus. But it's first a message that we need to be saved and we're not able to save ourselves. It's all in what God has done. Christmas then is that Christ has, God has become human, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus really lived and suffered. We're not believing advice. We are believing a report in history that's happened. This is the confronting reality of the scriptures. Now, let's work through the genealogy and see some of the evidence of the providences of how Matthew is tying together the rest of scripture. One of the most compelling evidences of Jesus being the Son of God is the continuity that Scripture has together. First, notice from the opening statement, we expect Jesus' family tree to understand who Jesus is, his ancestral past, and what he has come to do. We see first that he is called the Son of Abraham. What the author is doing, what Matthew is doing, is connecting Jesus to the father of the people of Israel. Abraham represents the moment when God selected and separated his family from the rest of the nations all the way back from the book of Genesis. That God had chosen this family to be a blessing. See how um, God talks to uh, Abraham in Genesis 12. Here's what he tells them. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The first thing that the author is doing is connecting us back to the mission of Abraham, what Abraham is going to do, and now here is Jesus continuing on this mission. Second, we see the son of David. Abraham's name pointed to a belonging amongst the people of Israel, but David's name tells us that Jesus was royalty. In 2 Samuel, we see this, uh, where the Lord declares this to David. He says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will rise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom 
He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What Matthew is doing is he's connecting the blessing of Abraham, that he's going to be a blessing for all nations, but he's also showing us that this child is the one that's going to establish the house of David forever. Now, what's unique about this, starting off with a genealogy, that in those days, your genealogy is your resume. It's what you submit to show that you have lived a good life. Here is your credentials. And in those days, it was your pedigree, your clan, and all the people that connected to you that connected, constituted your resume. Your heritage was your reputation. Now, we do a similar thing in our culture. Uh, when I was courting Jessica, the first thing that my parents asked her, well, what does her family do? What's her dad? And I was very happy to report, well, he's a pastor. So they know, like, he, she comes from good stock. Like, she, she lived in a, a pastor's home. She follows Jesus. And in the same way, I'm sure that her family asked about my family and where we came from and what we did. Because in a way, our family line is our resume. We know from history that these family genealogical resumes were very important to people, and they'd often be edited. We see that Herod the Great purged many names from his public genealogy because he did not want anyone to know who was connected to him. The purpose of a genealogical resume, this is important, the purpose of this resume is to impress onlookers with a high quality and respectability of one's roots. Now let's look at Jesus' resume. The first thing that we notice in Jesus' resume is that there were racial outsiders among them. Israel was God's chosen nation, but in Jesus' resume, there are Gentiles, Canaanites, Moabites. And maybe one of the most surprising elements in this resume is that there were five women listed in the genealogy, all mothers of Jesus. Now, this doesn't seem unusual to us, and this, it wouldn't be very politically correct of us to leave a woman off of our resume now. But in a patriarchal first century society, you did not do this. You listed the men and their resume and what they've done. But there are five women here that are listed. And notice who they are. For example, we see that it says Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, recall what happens in this biblical story. This is what Matthew's wanting us to do. Tamar tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her. Now, this is an act of incest. Everywhere in the Bible against the law of God, even though Jesus was descended from Perez and not Zerah, Matthew includes both Perez and Zerah, both Judah and Tamar, to make sure we bring the whole story to mind in this entire dysfunctional family that's with it. Notice another name, Rahab. Do you remember who she is? She's a Canaanite prostitute that hid spies. And it's mentioned uh, later in Hebrews that she's recognized for her faith. Do you remember what she said uh, when speaking to the spies? She says, we've heard of your God and our hearts melted. Notice something else interesting. The name King David now, here's a name that you might want in your resume, right? King David, he's the one that his son will have the line. But notice how in verse 6, Matthew introduces David. 
He says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, wait a second. Whose mother? It's Solomon, but who is she? It says Uriah's wife. Why does he say Uriah's wife? It's because Matthew wants us to flood back all of this imagery of what happened with King David and Uriah. Now, if you'll remember, before David became king, he was a fugitive running for his life from King Saul. And there were a group of men in the wilderness who came around him to protect him. They were called who? David's mighty men. They were David's mighty men that would go. And there was one story of David's mighty men where David was just longing. He didn't request this. He was just longing from a drink uh, from this certain well in Jerusalem. And you know what his mighty men do? They don't say a word. They don't say anything to, to David. They stand up. They fight all the way back through the battle lines. They get to Jerusalem. They get the water from this well. And they bring it all the way back to David. And they give it to David. And what does David do? He pours it out. Like, if I was one of the mighty men, I'd be like, what are you doing? What we just went through. But David says, if I can't drink from this, if you can't drink from this, we're not going to drink from this. But it was these mighty men that loved David this much. And you know who one of the mighty men was? Uriah. And if you know the story of David, there was a moment, a dark moment in David's life where he's lounging in his house, while all of David, while his kingdom is off to war, including Uriah, including his mighty men, he's sitting in the safety of his home. He looks out of his window and he sees Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and he sins for her. I think quite possibly he abuses her. He has a child by her. And to cover his tracks, he calls Uriah, his mighty man, a close friend, back. Go, sleep with your wife, he says. No, Uriah says. A second time, he tries to get him drunk. Go, back home and sleep with your wife. No, he says. Seeing that he's failed, David sends a letter back by Uriah's hand that he is to go to the front line and that the army is to withdraw, leaving Uriah exposed and killed. This is the story that Matthew wants us to have in our mind. Not because he wants to slight Bathsheba at all, but he wants to slam David. He wants to show the line that he's come from. So here is the genealogy of Jesus. You have moral outsiders, adulterers, incestuous relationships, prostitutes, Judah, David, moral failures. In this line, you have cultural, racial, gender, outsiders. So what does this mean? It means that your pedigree does not matter. It doesn't matter where you come from or what you've done. It does not separate you from King Jesus. He meets you exactly where you are. In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race or another race, slave or free, all are equal and accepted in Christ Jesus. Or as Paul puts it, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to this purpose and recipients of the blessing. 
Or as the author of Hebrews puts it about Jesus, he's not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. This is the wonderful thing and the wonderful story that Matthew is trying to point out in the genealogy of Jesus, that you are welcome regardless of your pedigree. The second thing that Matthew is showing us, and this is interesting to me, we're going to get a little bit nerdy here, is that the genealogy points us to ultimate rest. Now, look back at Matthew uh, verse 17. It says this, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So why make this distinction? This seems really odd to put at the end of a genealogy just to put some math there for us, but to even divide it out into 14 different generations. Why is Matthew doing this? We know that in the Bible that often numbers have symbolism, numbers have meaning. Now, we can take it way too far, and we can start charting out uh, blood moons and the return of Christ, and it's going to happen on this day, and people have bought billboards to say, by 2012, it's going to happen. That's not what we're talking about here with numbers in the Bible. But the biblical authors use numbers in a very specific way to assist in telling us the story. Now, if we look at what he has done, he has used... uh, Seven sets of seven in the 14, which points to the year of Jubilee. Just here in Leviticus 25, it says this. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the Sabbath, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day and on the seventh month of the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, each of you to return to your own family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow, do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields." In the Mosaic law, every seven years, the farmer was to let the land lie fallow to give it a chance to replenish its nutrients. And so the seventh year represented rest. And then later in Leviticus 25, we are told that on the seventh period of seven, so the 49th year going into the 50th year, it was to be a year of jubilee. And in this year of jubilee, all debts were forgiven, all slaves were to be freed, The land and the people were to have rest from their weariness and their burdens. The seventh seven, the the Sabbath of Sabbaths. So here's Matthew. And what he's doing is through the genealogy of Jesus, he is positioning Jesus to be born in that seventh seventh, that 50th year, the year of Jubilee. What do we know about Jesus in Isaiah 42? That he's come to set the captives free. The year of Jubilee happens when Jesus is born, but it gets deeper. It goes further. On this seventh seven, the seventh day, we know something from the opening chapters of Genesis. What happens on the seventh day? God rests. But a more literal term is not that God rests because he's tired and he's weary and just needs a break. 
It would be more literally that God dwells among his creation, that God inhabits the land with his people. So now what do we see on this seventh seven? Do we see Jesus coming in, God with us, Emmanuel dwelling? And this is quite literally what the gospel writer John is trying to put in our minds when he says that he tabernacled, he dwelt among us. So a few things to consider. One, it's the confronting reality of the gospel accounts. This is not a fairy tale. The gospel writers are not asking you to stretch your imagination, but rather consider Jesus for who he actually is and what he has done. Two, the genealogy of Jesus shows us that it's truly good news, that it does not matter your background or your pedigree, you are never too far from Jesus. Jesus is truly God. What can't he make new? Third, we see that the Christmas story is an invitation for us to rest. Jesus was not born among aristocrats. He was born into a barn among animals, laid in a feeding trough, outside the warmth of a home, born to wander, to lay his head on rocks. He does not have a home. Foxes have holes, he says, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head so that we may enter his rest. Okay, let's pause here. This is nice enough, isn't it? It's nice to see that it's not a fairy tale. It's something that we can hold on true. It's nice to see that it doesn't matter our pedigree, that Jesus invites us in. It's neat to see that he offers ultimate rest. But Christmas, it promises this. Goodwill to men, the angels say. Peace on earth. But when we look out in our lives, often we don't find peace, and especially around Christmas. Uh, a couple of days ago, I think it was Friday, I uh, walked down to the garage. Uh, it's under the house, and that's where we have uh, our hot water tank. And I noticed a pool of water on the ground. I thought, that's ah, not supposed to be there. And sure enough, our hot water heater had busted. And of course, that off also happened during the holidays, because who doesn't want to spend Christmas money on a hot water heater? So Dad and I, we go to Lowe's, and uh, we get a hot water heater, and uh, we uh, get stopped by a Lowe's guy that's trying to help us, and he notices this Alpine First Baptist Church shirt that I'm wearing that most of us have that says, because Jesus lives, we live for Jesus. And he stops me, and he asks me about that. He says, Okay, because Jesus lives, you live for Jesus. So uh, what's your doctrine? And that, that, that threw me so far off because what's my doctrine? What do you mean, what's my doctrine? I said, what do you mean by that? And he goes, well, your baptism. How do you baptize people? Uh, he goes, do you baptize in the name of Jesus or do you baptize in uh, the titles of God? And I'd not really heard that question asked that way uh, and I was taken aback by it, and I said, well, we, what we do is we, we baptize by what Jesus says in Matthew 28, by uh, going and making disciples of all nations, baptizing him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, he said, and he finished what I was saying. He said, but did you know that the Father is Jesus, and the Son is Jesus, and the Spirit is Jesus, and if you don't baptize in Jesus' name, you are not saved. And I said, okay, hold on, time out. 
All right, so let's, let's back this up a little bit. So what you're telling me is that my baptism is invalid if when I was baptized, the minister said, uh, I baptize you, John, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He said, that's right. You must be baptized in the name of Jesus. You're not saved. Now, I hope this provides a little bit of comfort for you. I've pastored, this is my fourth year to pastor. I've been a Christian now for a long time. Anytime someone comes up to me and challenges my salvation or says something like that, you know what happens? A little knot of fear. A little tinge of it. Well, yeah, what? Okay. And so you start reeling in your mind. You start to think, okay, what is my, what do I believe? And so, I said, so you're telling me, let me repeat it back. You're telling me that it is the work of the minister through the work of my baptism that saves me, that I must be baptized by that work that saves me. And he said, yes. I said, okay, help me understand the thief on the cross. Help me understand that because he doesn't come off the cross He simply says to Jesus, he doesn't even say, Jesus, you are Lord. He just says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. There is a fear that we all have that we've not done enough. That Uh, Maybe you've gotten it wrong, or maybe I I didn't say the prayer right. Maybe you've been in those church services where the minister has said, all right, every head bowed, every eye closed, repeat after me. And even though you've been baptized, you said it again, man. You're praying that prayer again because maybe it didn't take. Maybe it'll take this time. We all have that tinge of fear to say, have I done enough? Can I do enough? But here's the wonderful message of Christmas There's nothing that you can do. God comes to us. God comes to us. It's not a a magical prayer that I recite. It is believing in my heart and professing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, should we be baptized? Absolutely. It's a command in scripture. It's an ordinance of the church. We follow in obedience in that way. But we don't push people to fear. What is the message of the gospel leading to you? Is it fear? Because Jesus doesn't come as a mighty warrior, angry, fighting everything, to shake you out of your sin, to fear you to follow him. No, what does he come? How does he come? As a baby. He relies on his mother's breast the creator of all things, who holds all things by the power of his word. He holds all things together. He is the exact imprint of God's nature, and he comes as a child. He comes to you helpless, relying on his mother. Why? Because Jesus is both fully God, and he's fully man, and he has come to do what we never could to perfectly obey the Father. Walk in full wisdom and obedience to him. So when we come to the Christmas season and we say, well, 
If this whole thing was true, if, if Jesus is true and there's supposed to be peace on earth, why is there no peace on earth? And if I'm honest, I've asked that question. Why isn't it more peaceful? Why don't more people get along? But we must see that Jesus' mission and ministry was to do something unexpected. He was to meet us in the exact place of our need. Notice this in Ephesians. First, notice this, that this isn't a problem for um, the New Testament writers. Because Jesus has come, Jesus has died, Jesus has resurrected, and now we are now one in him, and there's no peace on earth. You don't see the gospel writers saying, whoa, whoa, wait, I thought there was supposed to be a peace on earth thing that followed with this. Notice that that's not a problem for them. Because they have tuned into the message to see that it's something different. See this in Ephesians. It says this, because of God's great love for us, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us up with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, we might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Here it is. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's not by my work of baptism. It's not because I'm a pastor. It's not because you've been faithful in church. All of us are unfaithful. That's why we sing, come all you unfaithful, weary and broken, bitter and angry. He has done what we could not do. And it says this about peace. It says that for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Who has made the two groups one, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, thus making peace. Why is, why is Jesus delayed? Why has he not come back yet? Why has he not made all things new? Why is our life not more simple right now? Why do we still struggle with sin in our lives and around our lives? I don't know. I don't know why he's delayed. But I do know this. I know that it's not because he isn't in control. Jesus is in control. And he's holding all things together. Why is Jesus delayed? I do not know. But I do know this, that in his delay, it is a great mercy for us. You see, the, the New Testament writers say that it is his desire that all men should be saved. And so in Jesus' tarrying, in his waiting, it is a mercy to you for those who have not responded to faith in Jesus Christ, to come to him. His delay is a mercy. Why is Jesus delay? I don't know. But I do know this. God may take his time, but he always keeps his word. 
Think of how long it had been since the promise of Abraham, or even the promises in Genesis, Genesis 3, that from Eve there would be a, one that would crush the serpent's head. Think of how long it's been from there to Genesis 12, where Abraham comes, and through him there's going to be a line, a blessing, one that comes, that restores all things. Think of how long it took from Abraham to David, from David to the Messiah, thousands and thousands of years, has it not? Friend, the Christmas story tells us that we don't have to worry about the delay. We don't have to worry about our pedigree, that if we're enough, but Jesus meets us exactly where we are, from our hope to our despair, from our sinfulness to our utter sinfulness. Jesus meets us where we are. So here's the invitation this morning. Here's, here's what I think we should take from just the genealogy of Jesus. One, to slow down. To slow down. The Advent Christmas season invites us to slow down and reflect on what Christ has done and what that means for us. You see, this morning there might have been some good nuggets that we can take home and go through the week on, but we know, we know that as two weeks go by, three weeks go by, four weeks go by, a year goes by, that, man, that nagging sin, that bad habit, what did that, that prone to wander, that despair, it follows us. So how do we overcome that? We remind ourselves of the story of Jesus. That's what Paul says. It's what Jesus tells us to do. The Christmas story is an invitation to slow down. The Christmas story is an invitation to reorient your life into Jesus' family and to see that his pedigree, his resume, is now yours. The righteousness of Christ is now on you because of what Christ has done.